to Innovation Matters. It's the podcast about sustainable innovation and also the podcast about room temperature, ambient pressure, superconductors, because that's what everyone is talking about today. I'm your host, Anthony, I'm joined by Kartik. How's it going? Hey, Anthony. Things are good. Mike is on vacation, so he gets to miss out on probably one of our spiciest episodes. Uh, we have a genuine scientific piece of discovery potentially happening. And Mike chose this week to, uh, I think, go to Tennessee or something. Some, somewhere <laughs> somewhere not worth it, I think. Pretty pretty solidly not worth it. So that's what you get. But um, a little background, I guess, is a good place to start. So, you know, room temperature superconductors, particularly room temperature ambient pressure superconductors, are sort of considered this holy grail for material science. We, of course, have superconductors, but they typically need to be cooled down to a few degrees Kelvin. Uh, so that requires helium cooling. It's super expensive. It's super challenging. And it obviously limits what you can do with them because you can't put a helium cooling system in the entire length of a transmission line, for example. So this is what's used in MRI machines, as an example, right? Um, and it's also quite energy intensive to cool something down that much. The magnet itself is very, very energy efficient, but everything surrounding it is really energy intensive. So we have this Korean group published a, a pre-peer-review uh, paper. Apparently, there's all sorts of human drama on this this story, which is one of the things that makes it like so fun. Um, but apparently, one of the researchers sort of went rogue and just published this paper describing basically a lead copper uh, room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. And this sparked a global race to replicate. Um, when this paper dropped the day of, we wrote on the member site, eh, don't worry about it. It's probably not a big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I stand by. I think that was probably the correct thing to write uh, on that day. But it's increasingly looking like there is something here. Uh, we've seen a Chinese, two Chinese groups claim to have replicated at least some elements of the paper. There's been simulations that have been done that have been claimed to replicate some elements of the of the superconductor. Um, and just in general, it looks more legit than the average uh, claim. Because this is the kind of thing that's been claimed in the past. And it has been retracted. Actually, the, the day that this paper published, there was also a retraction published for another paper um, claiming something very similar. <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that's highly, um, highly prone to hype, exaggeration, you know, potential fraud, you name it. But it seems more legit than ever, right? It seems like we're pretty close. So, mm -hmm. Kartik, what's your initial reaction here uh, for the potential of something like a, a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor? Um, I think uh, that would be sort of the holy grain, uh, grail, I think is the right word, for transmission. Because uh, if you look at Everything related to long-range transmission, everyone talks about losses. People look at different concepts like high-voltage DC transmission to curb these losses. And for our listeners who don't know, superconductors essentially have zero resistance. And so 
you can essentially transmit however long you like and still have the same energy at the other end um so when i was doing my masters this was very interesting to talk about because if we have an interconnected grid throughout the world then if you have sun in europe and you know nothing on the other side of the world you can essentially transmit solar power from europe to the other side of the world loss free which would be really super cool that's that would be of course the biggest application and the second one would be in nuclear fusion which is a topic that you know we yeah, talk about a lot we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking um, a lot about in, in our in our interview section for this this episode yeah so within nuclear fusion uh we use high temperature superconducting magnets now it is important to note that the high temperature here is 20 kelvin which is mm. minus 250 degrees celsius so not high temperature and you cryo cool them as you mentioned with helium and so if you have anything remotely close to room temperature then you essentially take out the cooling requirements that you need to keep the magnets running so it would be a huge step even in commercializing nuclear fusion and let's say addressing one of the engineering challenges that they face today yeah i think that's really important to call out because there's both real design and engineering challenges like you mentioned how do we actually build a system that really works right yeah but then there's also the just a question of the overall energy balance which is sort of this this linked question which is right now we've demonstrated fusion can produce energy on a sort of pure reaction level um that is to say the actual you know fusing of the atoms produces more energy than we put into it but um not on an overall engineering system level because it takes a huge amount of energy uh to produce the really huge magnetic fields to cool everything yeah. that's required for that reaction. So this simultaneously makes it a lot easier to build these systems and potentially uh improves the overall energy efficiency of the system substantially. Um of course. So it's it, it is a big deal. Um I yeah. I, I do want to throw some some cold water on some of the hype that's been going around. There's been a lot of talk about computing here and I think that mm-hmm. that is a little bit overblown. Uh superconducting computing is kind of its own field of science. You, you can't just drop a superconducting material into a chip and have it work because chips are semiconductors, right? Their their whole thing yeah. is based on switching resistance levels within the chip based on the the you know the movement. That's how CMOS works, right? Um the diffusion of these different atoms produces different reactions when you put a voltage across it and you're able to create a, a switch that way. With superconducting, um there is the potential to create hugely energy efficient computers and computing um approaches, but it's it's a completely different architecture from your you know, your phone, the chip that's in your phone yeah. or any chip that's really operating today. So it's good for some things, it's good for really really data intensive uh calculations. So I don't want to, you know, poo-poo it entirely, right? Um of course. But I think there's a lot of people saying, "Oh, like, you know, everyone's going to have a supercomputer in their pocket in like a decade or whatever." It's like, oh, "No, that's that's not really true. That's not really how it works." Um and that's that's going to be a big challenge still going forward. It's it's it would be a total redesign of of computer architecture. The one thing I did not see in this paper though is uh, because this is very scientific, very research oriented. um what would be the durability of such a semiconductor you know i mean 
Uh, we see a lot of questions about durability in the in the silicon space uh, by silicon i mean specifically photovoltaic space because beyond silicon solar cells if you look at the others they last different times when they are exposed to different conditions so they're just not economically viable at this stage if these semiconductors last for less than a day or something uh, just a random number <laughs> for the sake of this argument uh, then why would you use them right the another thing is is what's called the uh like the superconducting conductivity or um i guess i should say the the volume of electrons you can actually move across this this material basically you can get one electron through resistance free right that's fine but how what's the actual amount of current that you can put across this while continuing to maintain that extremely low superconductivity so for something like transmission cables which we talked about earlier you know if you can move a, ti- a teeny tiny little amount of electricity that's not that useful, right? We need to move a large amount of electricity, right? Yeah. Um, and similar for, for magnets, you know, these are typically very low voltage, but very high current applications. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that need to be resolved. In addition, there's a lot of things that need to be resolved on the manufacturing side. This lead uh, copper material requires a very specific crystal structure. And right now, the experimental methods that are used to produce it are very low yield, um, which is normal. This is a brand new material or a brand new piece of uh, material science we're talking about here. But we do need the ability, you know, when you talk about making a wire or making a cable or even making enough of this to produce a, a superconducting magnet, you need a fairly substantial amount of material and you need that material to be consistent um, in terms of its properties and its structure. So there's a lot of opportunity here for <laughs> improvements in the actual um, production of this material. And so I think all these things, when we said, hey, like, you should be cautious about this type of, uh, this type of product, this type of application uh, a week ago, uh, those are all the reasons I still stand by that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, of course, <laughs> you know it is potentially a big deal. I mean, we could see this. Normally, it takes a material like twenty years to get from the academic stage to a commercial stage, and that's typically uh, a pretty good time if you can get it done in twenty years. But with this, there is already a lot of hype, and there's already a lot of focus, and it's a really significant development if it really does work, and a, and a manufacturing route can be found for it. So you could see this move more quickly than, than 20 years, I think. Maybe 10 years, you know? 15 years? Maybe? Maybe. It's hard. Maybe, but yeah, but for me, getting the homogeneity of the structure that you mentioned is the biggest challenge, right? Um, which would need advances in not just, uh, you know, material science, but also in manufacturing capabilities of machines to get, you know, to as little tolerances as possible. And we are making a lot of advances in general across a lot of fields. So you're right. Maybe we will see this in 10 years and we would all go, wow. Yeah. I mean, we have the semiconductor manufacturing ecosystem, right? We have this ecosystem that is really well designed and set up to produce very specific crystal structures, very, very pure materials. But the volumes there are pretty limited, right? You're not talking about producing transatlantic mm-hmm. cables with semiconductor manufacturing equipment. That's just not going to, there's just a complete mismatch there in terms of the scale. But you could get enough material to make yeah. a fusion reactor. Like that's totally realistic. 
And I think that's uh, probably a good place to, mm-hmm. to leave it off. We'll be back in our next section talking all about Fusion with the CEO of the Fusion Industry Association. It's a fantastic interview. I hope you stick around. Okay, we're back. And I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Holland. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Fusion Industry Association. And I think this is an interview that the whole team here has been been really excited to do. It's such a cool topic. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Anthony, great to be with you. So I think it would be good to start with a, a pretty basic question, which is, what is Fusion? And also, it seems like a really early stage technology. Why does Fusion need an industry association? What does that do? Sure, sure. So so first of all, uh, Fusion Energy is literally the power of the sun. Um, what we're doing is taking the power of the sun on Earth. So, so what we have to do to do that is we have to create a plasma with fusion fuel, which means bringing up elements of hydrogen or, or other light elements up to temperatures of over 100 million degrees C, um, get them into an ionized plasma. And at those temperatures, the, uh, the fuel fuses. It's a nuclear process where the, the fuel fuses together, creates a heavier element and releases a tremendous amount of power. So it's a huge amount of power. It's clean, safe, sustainable, all the things we want in a long-term energy source. It is dense power with always on, always avail- available fuel. Uh, it's, it's really the holy grail. It's the thing that will provide us fuel and energy for basically the rest of humanity's ex- existence. Really exciting. Why do we need an industry association? Well, I think we're closer than you think. You may think. Uh, over the last several years, there's been a really exciting amount of new investment that has come into the private fusion energy industry. These are the companies that are able to uh, to to get the science to the point where they can commercialize this in a time period that's relevant for investors. So that doesn't mean tomorrow, and it doesn't mean next year, but it means that they're doing the work right now, putting the things together, actually building the pilot plants that will uh, provide energy uh, in the next decade. So the goal of our companies is to, to be building the proof of concept machines right now, and then prove that in the middle of the decade, then move into pilot plants um, and have those being built by the end of this decade such that we can be providing power in the 2030s. And that means that we can scale up fast enough to meet the climate challenge, meet the energy security challenges and all of that. It's aggressive, it's hard, Fusion is hard, fusion is hard, fusion is hard. This is something that people have been working on for a long time. But we think that the combination of new technologies and the significant new investment into this means that the time is now. And so why do we need an industry association? Well, there's a saying in Washington, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. 
So we have to make sure that our interests are being uh, being looked after here in Washington. And that means we have, to, we have to deal with the regulatory regime for fusion. We have to make sure that fusion isn't re- regulated like nuclear fission. We have to make sure that fusion is getting the same sort of clean energy incentives that other uh, clean energy technologies are getting. We have to make sure that we're able to access all of the publicly funded scientists in the national labs and universities and, and be able to partner with them. So that those are the things that I do here in Washington and increasingly in governments around the world. So maybe it would be good just to start there. Kartik, I know you had a bunch of questions. Um, yeah. where, where, where would you like to begin? There's so much to unpack. Yeah, so um, the first thing I would like to know, um, which because this podcast is called the Innovation Matters Podcast and we discuss innovation. Now, fusion, when we think about fusion, it is literally rocket science, right? It's things that's happening in the stars and it's space. And, you know, we had Oppenheimer. Yeah, and Oppenheimer released recently. So, you know, (laughs) a lot of good stuff in fusion. (laughs) So my question to you to start off would be, um, how would you classify innovations in fusion, right? What are you seeing are the the innovative steps that the companies in the Fusion Industry Association are taking to, you know, get to that next stage of, you know, we are ready to commercialize fusion and which sort of innovation would you say is best positioned in getting there? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, so clearly what, what's happened in the last several decades in plasma physics, the science, the real science of this is that scientists have gotten to have an understanding of how plasma works in extreme conditions such that they think that if they could build a fusion pilot plant, it would work. But what's happened and and what's really important on the innovation side is that the private sector companies bring in this innovation mindset where they're looking around at all of the other advances in technologies, material science, AI, um, high-speed computing, advanced manufacturing, applying those to the plasma physics and saying, well, how can we, through this this new innovation that's happened in all these other sectors over the last several decades, how can we apply that to plasma physics? So that means, it means different things for different technologies. It's, you know, one of our technologies is, is a pulsed power machine. So it has to switch on and off in microseconds, nanoseconds even. And that's just something that you couldn't have done um, to be able to, to pulse a lot of power, uh, high voltage through a, uh, a power semiconductor. And, uh, and those, those sort of power electronics have advanced so much, capacitors, power semiconductors, all that sort of stuff, have advanced so much in recent years, actually thanks a lot to other industries, aerospace industry and such like that. And so they take these innovations from elsewhere and start applying it to plasma physics, to fusion. And so, so that's, that's Helion, Helion Energy's sort of idea of how they think they can get there faster. Another one is um, another enabling technology is innovations in high temperature superconducting wire. And so you have companies like Commonwealth Fusion Systems, Tokamak Energy, uh, who are building magnetically confined fusion systems. So, you know, a Tokamak or a Stellarator or basically 
making a using very large, very powerful magnets to confine to confine that plasma. And high temperature superconducting wire allows you to build a more powerful magnet than has ever been built before. So, so Commonwealth tested their magnet at 20 Tesla, the, the most powerful large magnet ever built. And now they're building multiple of them to, to go into their, um, their Spark uh, proof of concept machine. Same thing, Tokamak Energy is testing really the really, really powerful magnets to be able to confine this plasma. And then, and so that being able to do that enables you to shrink the size of the, the fusion machine such that instead of, you know, if you, the, the old designs were like what's being built in the South of France in Eater is literally a, a huge, huge machine. It's more steel, twice as much steel as in the, as is in the Eiffel Tower. Whereas these smaller machines can have the same amount of um, plasma density and the same amount of, uh, or more, more plasma density. So they're, they're able to be much smaller and same amount of, of fusion power coming out of them at a 60th of the size. So instead of you know this huge machine, it, the tokamak will be about the size of a tennis court. Still big, but you know, when in the realm of something that can be built in a factory and, and churned out at speed. Right. Um, so obviously, when we are looking at, you know, pushing science to its limits, right, that's what we're talking about here, you know, shrinking the size of the reactor, uh, you know, as, you know, maybe the right word is as heavily intense, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the magnetic field intensity, you know, pushing that to the limits, um, pushing temperatures to the limits, pushing material science and computing to its limits. And of course, reaching those limits always comes with challenges, right, which is something the FIA, the Fusion Industry Association's report, uh, not to be confused with the FIA from Formula One, which a lot of people also follow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, Maybe a, uh, you know, a joint joint agreement together. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. fusion-powered uh, race car will be the, yeah. the next. Yeah, exactly. That would be something cool. Yeah. So, pushing science to its limits obviously comes with a lot of challenges, right? And that is one of the things the Fusion Industry Association's recent report touched upon which was the survey of, you know, what are the different challenges that are perceived by, you know, the different companies that are working on Fusion at this point. And the interesting thing from that survey for me specifically was uh, the two parameters, uh, the top two, I would say, that, you know, companies think are the, are the most difficult challenge to overcome by the start of next decade. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is, of course, obtaining the net energy gain. So for our listeners who don't know about this, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in December 2022 achieved a net energy gain of 1.5, uh, which is, of course, far lower than what we need for commercial fusion power, but is definitely a start and is a milestone. Yeah. Yeah, um, and the second one is, of course, engineering challenges in sort of getting us there, right? Yeah. So maybe could you delve in a little bit to, you know, maybe what's the thought process behind these companies in terms of are they actually just focusing on net energy first and then solving engineering challenges after? Are they doing this parallelly? Or where do you think companies are focused on at this point to commercialize yeah. fusion? Yeah, I mean, because we want to go fast and we want to, to have an impact on the energy system and the climate systems, it means you have to do things in parallel. So that, that does mean 
probably taking more risk. And businesses, kind of this venture capital, California venture capital mindset of take risk, retire that risk quickly, fail fast, learn from it, go on to the next thing, I think is really important here. Uh, instead of the uh, the kind of national lab mindset of we'll have it all figured out first we'll figure it out all on paper and then we'll build it you know so we have to we have to do multiple things at once and we have to have to put all these things together because we've failed honestly if we build a you know really awesome fusion core that gets you know q of 10 and power plant relevant plasma, but then we're not able to actually build a, a power plant, right? If we haven't done the rest of the, the balance of plant stuff, if we haven't figured out how to yeah, extract the energy and turn it into electricity, if we haven't figured out all of the, the blanket, uh, so, so you have to have a blanket that, that covers it, that will capture the energy and capture the neutrons. And also that blanket will have to generate the fuel. You know, it'll have to regenerate the tritium fuel in there. So, so uh, all these things we have to be doing in a parallel processing. So some of them companies are doing inside uh, and, and innovating within the companies. Uh, some, they're, they're looking for partners in either national labs or other companies that, that can do, you know, kind of an, an off-the-shelf solution to these. And, and others, you know, honestly, we think it's important for national science programs, both here in the U.S. and around the world, to be doing their own research, especially the things that are common to so much of fusion. Things like that, that fuel cycle management uh, are really important to, for, for governments to be doing the work and then kind of sharing it out among the whole of industry as opposed to, you know, kind of the, this other sorts of thing. So, so yeah, it, it, it has to be both. You know, if we build a, you know, one fusion power plant, but we can only turn out one a year, that's not going to make an impact. That's not going to do what we need to do. And honestly, you know, if we do that, we figure out the hard stuff, and then on a, kind of the easy stuff is left to the end, you know, global competitors are going to seize on that and build their own. How are you thinking about, the the challenges of competition versus collaboration here because if you know if you look at nuclear uh, fission for example or really almost any power technology you very quickly or over the course of maybe a decade or so get to the point where there's one design or a sort of narrow range of designs that work well and then mm -hmm. a bunch of other stuff doesn't really work as well mm -hmm. and you know in fission, we saw a lot of competition that ultimately wasn't very productive, right? The, the cost of nuclear fission, for a lot of reasons, went up over time as opposed to down, mm -hmm. which is not what we want. So how, right. you know, as the industry association, do you think about at some point, there's going to be that shift where we have to go from competing to figure out the best way to do this to scaling up and, you know, there is a there is a set best way. Hopefully we have a working fusion plant. Um how do you think about that shift from? Well, you know, I, I think competition is competition is is the the thing that's going to drive this, you know. And there's been efforts in the past to down select uh, infusion towards one technology, and it keeps coming back that that we just don't know enough yet which one's going to be the winner. And if we try and force that, you know, it 
government selection or anything like that, who's going to force on what's what's the best way forward? I don't think that's that's helpful at all. Uh, and and honestly, you know, I also look at this too as the first fusion power plant may not be the ultimate fusion power plant. If we had down selected in you know 1919 after World War One, and we proved how you know the radial propeller really was the the way forward for aircraft, then we would have missed a lot, right? So we've got to allow innovation to continue to go and and. You know, there will be standardization that happens within certain technologies and such, but, um, you know, it, there are four important things like this, which, um, you know, there's a broad market for. We shouldn't live in a uh, restrictionist mindset. We shouldn't think that there's only a small pot of money to be able to do this. You know, we're talking about the global energy system, which in the United States alone is a trillion dollars a year. The market's there. You know, the investors will follow on this. Um, if if companies can prove they have a technology, they should they should be able to to work towards that. Now, there's there's definitely a lot of a lot of ways that that companies can share things. Governments can can work to support things. There's a lot of commonalities in the different fusion processes, but you know, within the FIA now, there's 38 member companies, and none of them are in the exact same technology subset. So uh, there's there's just a huge huge amount of diversity. Too soon right now to down select, and I'd I'd argue that you know I I don't know who would be the one who down selects and how how that would handle. Certainly, it's not me. <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably a good uh, a good pivot or a good transition to a big question, which is policy. You mentioned yeah. this, you know, at the start. You're based in Washington. Obviously, policy is huge for the energy sector in general, but also yeah. specifically for energy innovation. Right now, we've of course had the Inflation Reduction Act and a number of other policies globally. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can just start with a little bit of a, a landscape of fusion policy. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like you had some policy prescriptions or things you'd like to see happen as well. So I'd be curious for your thoughts there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. I, that's what I do. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. I, I, I'm I'm the policy guy here in Washington. Uh, and so there's a few things that we are focused on that we think are important. And I'll, I'll start number one with this is less something that is in Congress or legislatures, but is in the regulatory bodies. Fusion is going to be regulated just like any energy, any energy source. You have to convince the public that, that this is going to be safe. It's not harmful. Um, the challenge is, is that fusion, of course, is a, it, it's a nuclear technology. So there is kind of a built-in uh, bias that says, well, we have a regulatory regime for nuclear power. We, we regulate nuclear fission plants very strictly. Uh, and, you know, and that's appropriate because fundamentally, Fission is easy to start and hard to stop. And if you're unable to stop it, then there's a lot of bad things that can happen. So you have to prove to the regulators that you can do that. And because the regulators have, have been engaged in this, fusion's now, or fission is, is now very safe. But if we apply the same regulatory regime to fusion, 
we're just going to layer in all these costs, all this time for no appreciable benefit, because fundamentally, fusion is very hard to start and very easy to stop. You know, the, the, the failure mode for fusion is just it turns off. It automatically turns off, right? Some, something goes wrong, the, the fusion stops, it turns off, there's no threat to the public. So, so once we recognize that, we see that fusion is actually closer to things like uh, accelerators, medical isotope facilities uh, that are already regulated. So we've, we've got a regulatory regime there, we're working to fit that in and we're working with the, the US NRC to, to get that done. And we wanna see that, that similar around the world. So second thing on policy is public-private partnerships. We think it's really important that our companies are able to access the science and innovation that has been done in national labs and publicly funded universities for 50 years, 60 years. And it's not always obvious that it's easy to do that. In fact, sometimes the easiest way for our companies to do that is just to go out and hire the scientist. And of course, that's maybe not the best thing for both sides because then that, that expertise is lost to the university or national lab. So what we need is programs that allow them to partner together, either on discrete projects. You know, I have this problem and I want to work with Princeton on it. And, you know, we work together for six months, we solve it, it's done. Or they, it can be a longer term, more engaged public-private partnership. And, and we've, uh, we've got a new program set up through Department of Energy, um, a milestone-based public-private partnership that's about to kick off. Um, it come, they've selected the companies. Companies are now agreeing to contract terms and, and will kick off soon. Uh, actual work towards designing and building pilot plans. Uh, this is a, a program actually loosely modeled on the public-private partnership that invested in SpaceX and other commercial space programs from NASA uh, and really created the commercial space sector. So we think it's, we think it's an important uh, policy approach and everything. You also mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, IRA, really transformative for all sorts of energy. Fusion is not really mentioned in it, but we just have to make sure that fusion, when it's ready, when it's on the grid, will get those same incentives. We think there's no reason it, it, it won't, but it's, it's kind of just a, we've got to go out and do the work to make sure that, that they check all the boxes and, and give us those tax credits that our competitors are already getting. Yeah, so, uh, which again, um, I guess would be the biggest question that our listeners would want to know, the, mm -hmm. the question that you mentioned, when? Are we going to see fusion power on the grid? So there is a running trend that question. fusion's always 10 years away. Yeah. It'll always remain 10 years away. Now, <laughs> this is not something that, you know, uh, I fully agree with because I think fusion is closer than we think. Yeah. But uh, maybe from you, because you have seen all these companies and your member, you know, member companies, part of your association. So maybe uh, you could, you know, lay down this timeline to see when can we expect a fusion pilot plant? When do we actually see fusion powering the grid uh, and, and based on the different companies you have seen. Yeah, yeah. So, so, fun, so any sort of technological uh, breakthrough innovation is a function of both time and resources, right? And so, yeah, thir if fusion was 30 years away for 30 years, but we never applied the resources to it that were available. 
And so now with private sector dollars coming in, you mentioned our report, $6 billion in private sector dollars added on top of all of the public sector research that's been ongoing for a long time. Those resources coming in should allow us to, to get over that hump, get out of this sort of fusion never timeframe. And resources, it's not just dollars, it's also you know, the technological advances that have happened in, in the time, the stuff that I, I talked about, that makes it cheaper and more likely that it's gonna happen. But we, have to, we do have to devote attention to it. If we don't get the resources, either private investment or public investment, it is still gonna recede out into the future. But we think we see we're on a, a pathway now with, with investment that will be coming as we meet these milestones, as we show what we can do to get fusion power onto the grid in the early 2030s or before. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Helion Energy has now agreed to the first, public, first power purchase agreement, PPA. Uh, and they agreed this with Microsoft. Microsoft Corporation will be buying fusion power from Helion in 2028. That's really aggressive timeline. That's five years from now. Uh, and you know, it's 50 megawatts. It's not like they are buying 50 megawatts always on, always available. The first, the first instances, the first pilot plants, you shouldn't expect 100% uptime. You shouldn't expect Actually, you probably shouldn't expect it even to be really cost competitive, but it's going to prove all this sort of stuff out. It's going to prove that we can do this. And, and other companies are looking in, a, you know, that's, that's the earliest time frame, but, but other companies are, are looking in this sort of late 2020s, early 2030s time frame of building a pilot plant, getting these things to there. You know, the, the nature of kind of large industrial or large, you know, uh, projects like this is that, you know, a lot of things take time. Building stuff takes time and, and everything. So so probably in the in the five year window, there's there are things you can do to shrink it, to push it closer, but not that much. Once you're in that five year window, you kind of know what your time frame is. But outside that. It really is. It's about how much risk you're willing to take on, how much business risk you're willing to take on by doing things in parallel, how much money and resources you're, go you're willing to apply to it and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, I think I think we've got a real good shot of getting fusion power on the grid in the 2030s, fusion power commercially relevant on the grid also in the 2030s, but probably in the latter half of the decade. And, you know, the fact that there's 38 companies in the FIA, I can say this, but maybe none of the companies would say this, that, that means there's 38 shots on goal, right? No, no company would say that they won't get, that they will get there. You know, they all think that they're going to be the ones that get there and they're the best, best design and, and everything. And, and that's what competition's about. And I hope all 38 get there, but 38 shots on goal means that if some miss, you're still managing risk instead of down selecting too early into just one that, you know, for some reason could could fail in some some respect. Andrew, you know, this podcast is really about this question of of risk and mm -hmm. resource allocation. And I'm really glad you're thinking about it in these terms. Yeah. I guess for a government or for, you know, anyone, why what's the reward here? You know, we've talked about the resources, we've talked about the risks and and you know how we're taking a lot of shots on goal. Why should governments continue to support this type of research or even private money support this type of work? 
what's the value compared to just oh we should just scale you know as much solar and even or conventional fission what's the what's the reward here totally uh it, it it's a really important question um so so first you know we we're hearing from our friends in industry and in the um especially in utilities and such that they're going to be putting on as much solar and wind and renewable power as they can in the next decade. But there's a point at which they're not sure that you can do that much more. You're going to run into, you know, physics problems of how do you keep enough variable power on the grid? So you need a firm, centralized, zero carbon power source. Fusion can fit that. But you're right that nuclear fission can also fit that. So also can carbon capture. So can batteries, hydrogen, all these other things. So there's there are competing things. But the truth is, is that all of those have already gotten a lot of incentives from the government. So we have to make sure that, you know, fairness only says they should get they should also go to fusion. But also, I mean, ultimately, like fusion is the thing that will power humanity for the rest of our existence. Once we have fusion power, the only better thing is better fusion power. And uh, because it's, you know, the nature of the fuel being so abundant and the, the power source being so compact and dense, you know, you can do all sorts of cool stuff once you start getting to a power source that is cheap, compact, dense. You can, you can you know, synthesize zero carbon liquid fuels. You can uh, send, you can do direct air capture of carbon, you know, so you can solve your climate problem by pulling carbon out of the air. You can do a lot of cool stuff with space. You can, you know, it opens up the rest of the solar system. Instead of Mars being a year and a half mission, it becomes a month mission out there. You know, stuff like this that that's really sort of exciting. We don't talk as much about it because, you know, politics is short term, but mm -hmm. in the short term, We've been reminded in the last year and a half by Mr. Putin's adventures in Ukraine that energy security is really important. Our friends in Europe have had a tough go of it because they've lost access to, you know, Russian energy. Uh, and so if they had had a firm zero carbon source of power like fusion, they, they could have scaled up and it wouldn't have mattered. Of course, you know, you could say the same thing about fission, and and it sure would, sure would be nice if they kept those things on. Uh, but you know, that, that's that's a different story. There's different. There's uh, cultural difficulties in that sort of stuff as well. So, um, yeah, you know, it in in the midterm, there is uh, enough need for uh, zero carbon sources of power that you know, fusion is, is going to be one of them and, you know, should be a, a part of that mix. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your time with us and your knowledge. It was really fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, thank Carter. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right. And if, when that fusion uh, happens, you'll hear about it on this podcast. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.